Hello, my name is Anne-Marie Cannon, and I'm the host of Armchair Historians. What's your favorite history? Each episode begins with this one question. Our guests come from all walks of life. YouTube celebrities, comedians, historians, even neighbors from the small mountain community that I live in. They're people who love history and get really excited about a particular time, place, or person from our distant or not-so-distant past. The jumping-off point is the place where they became curious, then entered the rabbit hole into discovery. Fueled by an unrelenting need to know more, we look at history through the filter of other people's eyes. Armchair Historians is a Belgian Rabbit production. Stay up to date with us through Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Wherever you listen to your podcast, that is where you'll find us. Armchair Historians is an independent, commercial-free podcast. If you'd like to support the show and keep it ad-free, you can buy us a cup of coffee through Ko-fi, or you can become a patron through Patreon. Links to both in the episode notes. Hello, fellow armchair historians. In this episode, I talk to history geek, storyteller, and tour operator Chris Albrecht about the history of Golden, Colorado, the town that almost became the permanent capital of the state. Chris says there's no better way to get to know a city than having a local teach you about it through stories. You can also get great recommendations for things to do, when to do them, and the places to avoid. So when he moved to Golden, Colorado, and realized there were no guided tours available in the Wild West town situated at the foothills of the Rocky Mountains, he decided to start his own tour company, Golden History Tours. Chris tells some well-crafted stories about Golden, its early days as a town during the second half of the 19th century, and some of the historical characters and events that helped make the town what it is today. Chris Albrecht, welcome, and thank you for being here today. Thanks for having me, Anne-Marie. I'm very excited to talk a little history with a fellow history buff, especially local history. I'm excited to hear your favorite history that you're going to be talking about today, so why don't you tell me what that is? Sure. I have been digging a lot recently into kind of the origin stories, if you will, around Denver and Golden. Uh, I'm based out of Golden, so I started looking up a lot of the history just on the street signs and the plaques that the History Museum and the city had put around town. And I thought it was really fascinating. And I thought there's got to be more to it. So the further I've been digging in, oh my gosh, the crazy stuff that happened when these towns were first coming together. I think a lot of people don't realize we were right there on the forefront of that gold rush, that Wild West push right around the mid-1800s. So for people who don't know, why don't you tell us where Golden, Colorado is in relation to Denver? Yeah. So Denver sits just outside the front range of the Rockies on the plains there, almost butt up against it. And then Golden is about 12 miles east, literally right on the foothills. And we're sort of nestled in there between the first row of the front range and a few table mountains. So we're tucked in in our own little cozy pocket, sort of separated from Denver, but still right down the road. I know that you have to tell the history of Denver along with the history of Golden so that we understand. So you go ahead and just say it the way that you think would be most helpful to my listeners. Sure. Yeah, they do go hand in hand. So I learned that as I was uh, 
listening to some stories being told about Golden that you really couldn't ignore what happened in Denver. One led to the other. So really, when you go back to it, we have to thank California for getting here because it was the 1849 gold rush in California that sent the 49ers sweeping across what was known as the Great American Desert at the time, the Great Plains. And the few of them that stopped off in the middle, because many of them were taking the northern route, the Oregon Trail, some of them took the southern route along the Santa Fe Trail, but those who came right through the middle on their way to California discovered some creeks and streams coming out of the mountains here that were producing little bits of gold. And it was that interest that kind of spurred everybody on once the gold rush in California started to dry up. So there was a group in particular, the Green Russell Party. William Green Russell had tried his hand in California, had gone back to Georgia, but discovered a few dollars in gold along the way in some of those stream beds just outside of the Rockies. So he organized another party to come back and found a few dollars here and there. There really wasn't a tremendous amount of gold down in the plains at the base of the mountains, but there was a lot of money back then that could be made by starting a town. And this was a really tricky thing to do at this time, though, because in 1858, 1859, when people were starting to settle right around here, think about what was happening with the rest of the country. We were in the middle of a big civil uprising, the civil war about to begin. So when gold was discovered and they were starting these towns, we didn't get a lot of help from the federal government. They had their own, their own problems they were dealing with on the eastern side of the country. And so that's really what drew out the Wild West part of it. So there's some fun stories about how these towns actually came to be. Now, there were a few people who did try their hand up in the mountains and found a few substantial gold strikes. John Gregory was one of them, just before him, George Jackson. So before I tell you about them, before I tell you about Gregory and Jackson, because they're directly tied to Golden, I have too many fun stories going through my head. I can't pick out which ones I want to tell first. <laughs> well, you know, really, you set it up good. It, it was the Wild West. And the last time I spoke to you, I thought about that and the fact that the government was tied up. And so people were creating these uh, living arrangements, and they had to come up with their own way of having law and order. So mm -hmm. I think that's a very interesting point that you raise. Yeah. I mean, at the, so at the very beginning at that group, William Green Russell's group, they came up through Cherry Creek and landed where Cherry Creek runs right into the South Platte River. At that confluence, they started one town called St. Charles on the eastern banks of Cherry Creek. The way they started it was it was sort of a privately owned company, the St. Charles Town Company. And people would buy into that, like private stock. If you wanted to be part of the town, you would pay into it. And that was kind of their way of collecting money and putting the town together. But if you did not want to participate in that, you couldn't be within their self-drawn town limits. So as people began flooding in, there's another group that started their own town just on the other side of the creek, on the western banks of Cherry Creek. And this was William Larimer, General Larimer, his son, and a few others. They started the town of Auraria. They started their own town. Auraria was named after the Georgians who came into town. So we had Auraria on one side, St. Charles on the other. And then in that November of 1858, William Larimer and his Kansas folk came in. Now, Auraria was sort of the free town. You didn't have to pay dues into it. Anyone could just set up camp and become part of the town and work together. But Larimer and his group, realizing that when they came in November 
and found the town of St. Charles had basically been abandoned because that, that group had gone back to the eastern side of the Kansas Territory to get the paperwork written up to establish and charter their town. A man named Magaw was supposed to be guarding it for them. He claims that the Larimers got him well drunk on whiskey and convinced him to move aside as they took over the half-finished town of St. Charles, a lot of empty buildings and half-constructed cabins. So when the St. Charles folks came back, there were the Larimers occupying their new town, basically claim-jumped them. And it's said that Larimer held up a noose in front of the proprietors of that town and told them, do you really want to fight over this? And they realized they were outnumbered, and at that point, the whole thing was over. So they lost the town of St. Charles, and Larimer, in an attempt to try and curry a little favor with the territorial of governor, because at that time we were still the Kansas Territory, they named it after him. Uh, that was James Denver at the time. And so that's how we got the name Denver. What they didn't realize, however, was that uh, Governor Denver had left office three months earlier. He had no power anymore to actually do anything for us, but the name stuck. So we had Auraria on one side, Denver City on the other. And uh, over time, Denver City would come to basically annex Auraria and bring it all under one name as the town grew stronger over the years. So this is in 18... 1858. So that was that was how the town of Denver started. We were a claim jump by a threatening bunch of Kansans. <laughs> okay, those badass Kansans. Right? They're, yeah, you can't trust them. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's how the town got started. And it was all started on the basis of gold. Now, those, these groups were finding bits, you know, some flakes here, a little bit of gold dust, gold powder, or what they would call flower gold. You know, because you got rocks, you've got nuggets, you've got flakes, and then you get down to this powdery, it's almost like a baking flour, and it's extremely difficult and expensive to get out of the ground, and usually not worth the effort it takes. You're wasting more money than you're earning. So they had basically exhausted any sort of gold findings on the banks of those creeks down at the base of the mountains. But that's when all these other little towns started springing up all over the place. And Golden City was one of those just 12 miles to the west of Denver. So when we get out there, there's a little bit fewer people, but there were a f one little town in particular that was just on the eastern side of South Table Mountain, one of those two tables that kind of nestles Golden into a little pocket. Uh, they named that town Arapahoe City after one of the local Native American tribes, and that was our jumping off point for those people who were coming into town who were going to try their hand up in the mountains. And that's where we get to George Jackson and John Gregory. So Jackson was the first one. He and a few people actually followed Clear Creek up into the mountains in 1859 in the spring, the winter and spring, before anyone else got up there. I can't imagine what he was thinking. It was cold. It was snow-packed. It was icy. He actually had to build fires over the, blank, the frozen banks of the creek to try and melt through to get fresh water and to extract any sort of sediment that he might be able to sluice out in his pan. And it took a few tries, but they eventually did find gold up in the hills. On their way back down, they stopped off for a bit of lunch. Jackson was trying to catch some trout in Clear Creek while his buddy Tom was up on the banks, starting a fire to cook him. And what Clear Creek did for us, uh, for a town, I always say, the creek giveth and the creek taketh away. There's about a 500-square-mile watershed that feeds the creek, so when the snow is melting, it runs really high. 
it was doing the same in 1859. You get a good rainstorm on top of that, and then you get flash flooding. And Jackson happened to get swept away in a flash flood on his way back down to resupply. Now, his friend Tom was sitting up there on the banks of the creek, watched the whole thing go down. Now, I usually tell this on the tours that I give around Golden. This story, I do a, a little bit more exaggerated version of this. But I always ask people, what do you think Jackson's friend Tom was doing or thinking at this point while he watches his friend get swept away in a flash flood, realizing he's the only other person who knows where the gold is in the mountains that they found? And I think that the answer is usually, well, I hope he saved his friend's life, but I don't think he did. I think he followed the map back up, but he did actually save George Jackson's life. The two men made it back down. And the valley where Golden sits today was unoccupied at the time. Not even the Native Americans who considered it a sacred area were living in the valley. But when they came back down, they found that people had started to set up the semblances of a small town here, another one. So a group of some miners and some businessmen all got together, chartered the town of Golden, Colorado, or at that time, Golden, Kansas Territory. But the name they gave it is not after the mineral. They named it after Thomas Golden, the man who saved his buddy George Jackson's life that day on the way down the creek. So there's your trivia fact for your listeners today. Golden was named after the man, not the mineral. So if you ever come and take a tour, now you know. <laughs> now I know. So where did they find the gold? Was it above Golden or like in that area, that general area? The first gold strike was on the southern fork of Clear Creek. Today we know it as Chicago Creek, and the town that sprung up there is Idaho Springs. Okay, that's what I thought. Mm -hmm. okay. And it was John Gregory who came down to try his hand after Jackson. He followed the creek up and took the north fork, and he discovered what we know today as the richest square mile on earth. Hundreds of millions of dollars of gold came out of that... Of, out of the Gregory diggings up there. And today we know that as Central City and Blackhawk. They really did find gold up there in that area in the 1800s. They did. There was enough gold up there to start the people swarming. But it was such a dishonest way of doing it because there was a lot of, yeah. there was a lot of money to be made by starting these towns. And you wanted people. You needed an economy. And that's where the businessmen, the people who came to mine the miners, were making their money. And they use some really devious and underhanded methods to do this. There's a few people involved in all of this. Once the gold was found, you know, the two major diggings were producing all of it, but everyone thought they could get their hands on their own because once word got out back east that there was actually gold up in them Nar Hills, they were sending newspaper reporters out to interview the people who were setting up these towns and talk to the mine owners. So you had people like Horace Greeley from the New York Tribune coming out, and he was writing... Uh, back in 1859, about the conditions in the camps and how prolific all these mines are, because what they would do is find a couple of the producing mines, borrow a bit of gold, and seed the ones that weren't producing. So when the newspaper men came to write about it, there was gold in every mine in Colorado. All you had to do is put a shovel in the ground and you could be rich. So that convinced a lot of people to make their way out here. As long as you weren't listening too closely to the wave of people who went the wrong direction, the go-backers. Mm -hmm. We had quite a few of those. So there was a lot of that where they were trying to sell it, this gold paradise to people back east to bring them out here. Mm -hmm. they, they were selling it hard. In fact, uh, William Byers, who started the Rocky Mountain News on the second floor of an old saloon in 1859... 
His paper, the Rocky Mountain News, was colloquially known back east as the Rocky Mountain Liar because of all the falsehoods he was posting, trying to lure people out. At one point, even saying that it was easy transport. You didn't need to risk your life on a wagon over the plains. You could float a steamboat right up the Platte River. Now, if you've ever been to Denver, you can't, you can barely get a canoe up the Platte River in winter, <laughs> let alone a steamboat. Not a chance. But he had he developed quite the reputation for himself back east with the uh, with his paper. Were they successful in their shysterism? Oh yes, I absolutely. They estimated at that time for every person who was actually working in the mines, you needed about five people to support the town that was supporting them because you needed to have a blacksmith, a dentist who coincidentally would also be your doctor and your dentist, which is just terrifying to me. Don't particularly want my hairstylist giving me a root canal. Um, but then you also had, you know, a sheriff, your grocery store workers, your produce, your farmers. It took a lot of people to run a town. So that's really where the money could be made. And by 1862, we had the Homestead Act. So the federal government would give you 160 acres for free as long as you put a fence around it and put a home on it or did some sort of improvement to it. So that, in addition, was causing a lot of people to flood out to the West who just wanted to make a new life for themselves in these new towns that were springing up, whether or not they were going to work in the coal mines or the gold mines or not. So were there homesteads on the outskirts of the town that was laid out of Golden? There were people setting up ranches and farms and lots of smaller towns that aren't around at all today. They either got subsumed or fell apart all over the place around here. In fact, there's. I always wondered about this until I finally looked it up. There is a small park right next to I-70 in the foothills as you're driving up into the mountains called Apex Park. It's a bunch of single track trails. You have a lot of runners, hikers, mountain bikers out there, but they have signs along the trails that tell you what the toll is to use the paths. And I'm looking at these the first time I go up there and think, why is there a toll to use these paths? And where do I put it? There's no box to collect it. And I finally realized it must be something historic. It must be like a throwback. And it is. Those were the first wagon trails up connecting the towns just to the west of us, just up west of Golden even, the town of Mount Vernon with the towns down in the hills. So they were putting up homesteads everywhere around here. Whoever was operating and maintaining the wagon trails up into the hills was charging tolls for that. So who owned what is hard to say, because at that time, nothing was really legal because we weren't getting any help from back well, east. That's, right. That's the thing. So when they laid out these towns, even Georgetown, I still don't quite understand how they did it. But how does it become a legal entity like the town of Golden? Mm hmm. So you'd have to go talk to the, at that time, who would be the governor of your territory, and they would have to sign papers to incorporate or, you know, charter a town, define the, the limits, I guess. I'm not sure exactly what the details are to go into that, but there has to be paperwork filed with the, whatever governing body is there. And well, around this time, 1859, 1860... We wanted to become our own territory. We were tired of being, you know, this loosely formed edge of Kansas. So they actually drew up the Jefferson Territory illegally. Nobody back east would 
you know, return. We're not, we're getting phone calls back from them. <laughs> <laughs> like they are all busy with their own stuff. So that would be really weird. That, yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, we didn't even have telegraph lines at this time. So it was a Pony Express was just about to get started. So you were going by stagecoach to try and send correspondence back and forth. But they just drew this gigantic square cutting off part of Nebraska, part of Kansas, a big chunk of Wyoming and a big chunk of New Mexico and said, we're the Jefferson Territory. We're making up our own damn rules. And they did quite illegally made up our own rules, our own boundaries, declared it ours. And eventually, uh, 1861, Kansas would become a state and then draw off a boundary there. And they took this Jefferson territory, gave a little bit back to what would become Wyoming, a little bit back to what would become New Mexico, and drew the square into the dimensions that we know Colorado today. And from a number of different recommendations across the state, people were being asked to volunteer options for naming. What do we call this? They eventually took Jefferson down to Jefferson County, where Golden is situated, Golden being the seat of the county. Ah, there you go. And the name Colorado, after Colorado City, became the winning vote to name our new territory that we would get in 1862. Colorado is a Spanish word that means colored red. So for the sandstone and the red deserts and things to the south of us, that's where that name comes from. But that was the winning name when they decided to officially create a territory for us out here. And we got. No, I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. Another, you're just full of fun <laughs> facts. I am. I love this stuff. I do too, actually. <laughs> yeah, that's that's how we came around, and the rules and the laws were all started by the mining camps. You know, back then we didn't have, we weren't getting the paperwork, the assistance, the governance from anywhere else. So the mining camps actually had the first written rules of any law in the area. And it was considered to be legal, legally binding at that time. Things like if you were caught stealing or, you know, stealing from somebody else in the camp, you'd be forced to repay that plus interest. If you were, you know, if you stepped that up a notch, you could be banished and exiled from the camp. All the mining camps had written rules. They all agreed upon them. If you did something really egregious, you could be hanged by, by their charters. But those were the rules that we had. And those rules sort of trickled into the towns as they were being set up, even if they weren't mining towns, which is effectively what Golden became. We never found gold, you know, more than a few dollars worth in the town that became Golden, but we became that support town, that depot town, as people were heading up the creek into the gold fields. So we adopted a lot of those rules and laws from the miners until something more formal that matched more closely with the, what the rest of the country was doing could be established. After the Civil War, what happens after the Civil War? Are people coming into Colorado and Golden specifically and staying, or are they just passing through Golden? We had a lot of people come out and stay. A few people were still on their way up to the mountains, and then we'd have post-Gold Rush boom. The, the Gold Rush boom was mainly the 1860s. Um, once it was pretty well played out and people realized they weren't finding any more gold strikes up in the mountains... We were settling a lot in the town, but there were a few people still prospecting, and we had the booms that would follow, the silver boom, obviously putting places like Georgetown and Leadville on the map, and then you get people coming through again, and that would drive the industry a little stronger. We'd have the railroads now being a major component in that. You know, the first railroad 
entered the borders of the Colorado Territory around 1867 up in Julesburg along the South Platte River, and then would make its way into Denver by 1868 and into Golden by 1870, and by 1872 connected Boulder and all the mountain towns as well. So quickly, within a few years, now we had this major infrastructure connecting everything. That sort of solidified us, put us on the map, thanks to people like William Loveland. He's colloquial... That is a hard word to say. <laughs> He's known around Golden as the, the Prince of Pioneers because he brought so much money in and really staked Golden out to be the, you know, the capital, the town. And that's, that's actually what we were is the original capital of the territory back in 1862 to 1867. For five years, Golden was the capital. I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. Now, I always say that we are the first capital, the original capital, before Denver stole it from us in 1867. That's not 100% true because Colorado City, down just now it's part of Colorado Springs, but then it was its own small town just it's on the western suburbs of colorado springs today at the base of pikes peak they nominated that to be the first capital way down there even though there was a lot more industry popping up around the denver region they nominated it the first people who ever showed up there to have any sort of meetings realized it was nothing more than like a ramshackle log building with a dirt floor that smelled terrible like they never actually had any meetings there it was labeled as the capital city for the territory the unofficial jefferson territory for a while like four months no one ever met there and they decided to move it up to golden yeah so once everyone realized that the railroads were coming through the 1860s that's when denver stepped up and said uh we'd like to be the capital now because those railroads bring a lot of money a lot of people a lot of industry and commerce but Golden said, well, you can't just be the capital. You know, we're the capital. You can't just have it. But the legislators, realizing that there was potential here, decided to hold an election. And the vote passed by one single vote to move the capital from Golden to Denver. Incredible. Wow. Mm -hmm. What's more incredible is that the person who cast the deciding vote was a Golden backer the whole time. But for some strange reason changed his vote to Denver at the last minute. Now, he got called out pretty heavily in the local papers for this. Um, you can imagine what might have happened. What, what would cause an upstanding citizen to change his mind and betray his town like that? Certain little green-colored paper with pictures of presidents on them have a, tend to persuade people's opinions, but... Follow the money, that's it. Mm -hmm. So, we like to say Denver stole the capital from us. But it was people like William Loveland, um, Edward Berthoud, George West, the pioneers that settled the town that brought the business and the money to us. You know, together they were responsible for the newspapers and the railroads that kept us going. They fought hard for it. In fact, William Loveland, and the reason that these names are going to sound a little familiar to people in the area, William Loveland, he brought the money, he brought the business, he started the Colorado and Southern Rail Line headquartered in Golden. Even though Denver took the capital from us, he wasn't giving up on his town. So having started the railroad company here, that provided the lifeblood for the town, and he fought to get the railroad coming through Golden up to the mountains because they were talking about bypassing us completely and just going up 
the Mount Vernon Canyon. Today, that's where I-70 goes up through the the mountains. But he convinced him to come through Golden, which without that, we really wouldn't be where we are today. So William Loveland was the, the the money behind it, the business behind it. And he hired a local engineer named Edward Berthid to devise a way to get the narrow gauge rail line through Golden up into the mountains to connect, well, us to you up there in Georgetown. And because of that, because of the railroads that he brought into the Front Range, each man has a town named after him to the north of us, between here and Fort Collins. And then each man has a mountain pass named after him to the west, Berthid Pass and Loveland Pass. So that's how instrumental they were. Loveland Pass is right above the town that I live in, which is Georgetown. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then Berthid Pass connects up over into the Winter Park Range up there. Yes. Yeah, so William Loveland was the business. Edward Berthid was the engineer who got the railroads up into the mountains. But the railroad itself went up through Georgetown. And that's the Georgetown Loop that we have today is the original rail line that connected the plains to the mountains. Yeah. Oh, if you want to start getting into railroad history, we're going to be here all day. That is, yeah, that's for sure. oh man, that, that was such a mess of people selling railroad that didn't actually have any supplies to build it they were just taking advantage of people and so many different arms and they only got like halfway through the uh tunnel they never finished it the moffat tunnel i think i think they got the tunnel through but originally that was supposed to connect denver with salt lake city and he got as far as craig before he ran out of money okay yeah oh man there's so many stories around all of that there sure is so at what point does Golden realize it's not actually a mining town? How is it transformed and what does it become? So, I mean, Golden realized that it wasn't a gold mining town right away. It was definitely established as the depot town. But there was a lot of other mining that was happening here, just not for gold. So I'm going to throw some more fun facts at you because I just love these and I'm full of them. Okay. So during the 1870s and 1880s, we were mining coal. We found, because of all the geologic uplift for the Rocky Mountains, a massive coal seam that runs, they estimate, about four to five miles along the Front Range between Golden and Boulder, and it goes about a thousand feet down. It's almost perfectly vertical. And so the coal miners were digging these immensely deep mine shafts into the ground, and then arms off those shafts to extract the coal. And at one point, the White Ash coal mine operating in Golden was the deepest coal mine in the country. So prolific. I didn't know mm-hmm. that. I did not know that. Yep. So the coal was a big one. So we were mining coal. Okay. The other thing that we were pulling out of the ground in, around here was clay. That clay was used in all sorts of things, but primarily in bricks and porcelain. So the Golden Brickworks, there were a number of different operations that were producing bricks for years up until the 1920s and 30s and it was such good business for us that we were actually shipping around the world we were shipping bricks from golden to china japan all over for their infrastructure needs so that's how much clay we were pulling out here but it was around the turn of the century that a different person in town decided that clay could be used for porcelain So a few people were starting small porcelain companies in Golden. Nothing big, just local stuff. But when we stopped receiving our porcelain imports from Europe during World War I, people were starting to freak out. We need to have our fancy china sets and 
dishware and dinner plates. So a man in town realizing that the U.S. was in a bit of turmoil, World War One, and then not long after that, we we're gonna, or actually during that, Colorado would see prohibition. Seeing the signs coming, Adolf Kors bought up these little porcelain companies and started his own porcelain company and was producing porcelain for the people all around the country, all around Golden. And that porcelain company would later go on to produce electrical insulators and components because porcelain is a fantastic electrical insulator. So that vertical of the Coors operation is one of the main reasons they were able to stay soluble during Prohibition. Oh, okay. Very interesting. Mm -hmm. That is fascinating. Yeah, so the today Coors Tech is still in operation. That's their porcelain side. They do somewhere between eight and nine hundred million dollars a year in revenue for the Coors, you know, as a Coors company. There is Coors porcelain used on the International Space Station. And kind of a shady side of this, the Coors brothers, the third generation who are operating the business at the time, didn't realize what the porcelain was being used for when they shipped it to the Oak Ridge National Laboratory in Tennessee and later would come to find out they were using that porcelain in developments of the first atomic bomb. So Coors Porcelain was responsible for what was dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Whoa. Or at least partially responsible. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I hear you. That is interesting. So Golden is quite a place there's a, it, it seems to have a lot of different industries throughout the years mm -hmm. well i guess i want to know you got interested in it and then what did you do with this tell us what you do which is a, a really good example about how much you love it. <laughs> talking about it yeah i i mean i've always loved learning and trivia has always been a lot of fun for me obviously i'm just stuffed with fun ridiculous facts about the history around here so always having that fascination and it's funny because i was actually terrible at history in school you know if you could have just given me a timeline it would have been so much better but i don't know why that my history teachers always insisted on just talking about events and then expecting my brain to put them in chronological order just by verbatim i'm like it doesn't work that way in any case yeah, history was not my best subject in school, but I always loved the Wild West era. You know, like out of the Back to the Future series, probably going to get a lot of flack for saying this, but the third one was my favorite. I just loved that idea and concept of being on the forefront. So, and I also love touring. My wife and I, when we travel, will look for different tours to take, um, no matter what they are. I mean, and there's great ones in places like Salem, Massachusetts. Oh my gosh, the the tour obviously is something to take up there because of what happened with the witch trials. But there's more to it than just that too. And I won't give away any of their tour secrets. But Milton Bradley came from there. There's some cool things to see up there. In any case, we moved into the town of Golden itself about three years ago and said, "Well, let's go take the tour." And the only tours that were happening at that time were summer and autumn ghost tours at night, which were a lot of fun. But when you walk around Golden, especially downtown Golden, the city and the historical museum has done, they've done such an amazing job of preserving and advertising the history with plaques on all the buildings and all along the bridge, different pieces of history that all come together. 
And so as I'm reading these, I'm like, there's so much here. Why is nobody doing these tours? The only one you could take other than the ghost tours was a self-guided one that the visitor center put together, the museum put together, where you could pull it up on your phone and follow along and read about little bits of it. But how much more fun is it to have a tour guide who can point out the local spots that the lo- you know, how to live like a local, where to go that's off the tourist path, you know? So I decided that I was going to take my love for random trivia knowledge. And basically at this point, I had learned so much about Golden itself that we'd have friends come out to visit. They would get to a point where they just had to tell me to shut up. I'm like, hey, did you know that about this? Like, yes, yes, we knew that about just can we stop with the history lesson, please? <laughs> and so I realized like I might be able to get people to pay me to do this and have some fun with it at the same time and start a little side gig. So I decided to start my own tour company and researched as many of the facts and dates. And then I turned those into the stories. That's really what got to be fun for me is that it's not just, hey, that building is really old or this used to be that and now it's this. It's the stories of the people behind it. So I've spent a lot of time looking through books and talking to historians and getting newsletters. And we have some really dedicated and knowledgeable historians in town that are sharing their their information for free and I got to give all the credit to them but then taking those stories and telling them you know true storyteller fashion not just reciting dates and facts through these tours and that has grown over the last two years now started it two years ago and I've got a one hour and two hour just walking tour through town where I'll tell you the stories and give you the history Uh, We can do a pub crawl version of that where we go to three local microbreweries and you get to hear about how those breweries got started, the types of people that are running the businesses and have a beer. And I'll tell you stories while you're trying some local beers. And then now I'm also doing Golden Ghosts and Spirits Haunted Pub Crawl. Yeah. So that one we go out at night and uh, we stop at a couple of places, some haunted buildings along the way and tell you the stories about the hauntings and some of the seedier sides of golden that we've dug up because obviously being at the forefront of the wild west and the edge of that frontier without the institution of government it was well you were largely on your own have you had any experiences when you're doing your ghost tours your ghost crawl on my tour itself and i think i always tell people when we start the ghost tour some people are more open to experiencing things than others I've experienced a couple of things in my life that I have a really hard time explaining. I've also seen photos that people have sent me after taking the tours because I encourage people to take photos at certain spots. Some are really easy to pick out like, yeah, that's the headlights that from that car driving down the road. And then there's some that go, I, I can't explain what that is to you. That looks like there's somebody looking out that window, but all the doors and windows are locked. Yeah. So I've had a lot of secondhand experiences. I don't think I'm particularly... Or like one of those people who's more open to those experiences. I want to be, and I definitely believe in that. But I've had a few things happen, even outside of that, like hearing footsteps walking across a floor, and then there's nobody there. I'm the only one in the building. You know, I've had some creepy experiences like that. But I've definitely had people experience some things on the tour that go beyond explanation, rational explanation. Right. Right, right. Why is this history important? 
I believe you can't know where you're going if you don't know where you came from. For me, there's a couple of reasons for it. It's important to know the background of where you're at, at least to some degree. How Colorado came to be, we didn't just appear here. In fact, the the events that led up to white people, to settlers being in this area, are pretty atrocious when you go back and read through those, you know? And I skipped over all that in this interview, like the atrocities that were taking place throughout the country that allowed us to be and remain here. Understanding that puts things in such a different perspective. And it's like if you try and draw a line to the future and you have one dot, that line can go anywhere. How do you know what to do and how not to repeat it? That's the other quote. Uh, Those who ignore history are condemned to repeat it. I don't think I have that exactly right, but sounds good. it's, uh, yeah, the the sentiments there. You know, we don't want to have another get kind of gruesome and dark here, but a Holocaust or the genocide of the Native Americans. You have to understand all of that to really understand what makes us who we are. So, uh, you know, on its deepest level, there's that. I think that's why it's important to know the history. On another level, it's to, especially when we travel, when I take tours, I feel like I know the town and I understand the culture so much better. Even after taking even a short tour, a one hour or a two hour tour, you understand why that town is there, how it got to be there, the events that led up to it. But now I can walk around that town and know what are the businesses to go check out because the tour guide has given me those secret local insider tips, who the people are in general. You know, I think that's really important. When you travel, you can follow guidebooks or you can pull out Google and try and do it on your own. But being a tour guide and knowing the history and being able to share that with people gives them, gives people who are visiting a different respect for your town and your history and your culture. So that's why I like to do that and share that with the people who are visiting. Well, it's more intimate that way. Mm -hmm. I have a tour business and I get to know people on a deeper level and they get to know my town on a deeper level. And so it's a give and take. It's like a dance almost. But yeah, I agree with you. I think that it is important to... I'm a history geek too, so (laughs) of course I think that. But... I like to know the history of a place as well. And I like the way that you, you know, the different levels that you explained. I think that's really profound. So, yeah, I'm right there with you, my friend. Do we see this history in pop culture? The precise characters themselves, you don't see too much. I mean, if you wanted to look into movies and TV shows, there are a couple of old Westerns that I forgot to go and look up the names of them. They're very hard to find. But they did film a couple of westerns back in the 30s and 40s, maybe, I think it is, around or in Golden, but nobody recognizable, not like a John Wayne. And then there was a particular, there was a TV show that filmed an episode here in the in the 60s. You can see the big golden arch in the background as they go driving down the road. So there's a few things like that. The biggest name that you would see in Golden, you know, probably outside of Coors, it would have to be Buffalo Bill. Now, Buffalo Bill never actually lived in Golden, but he spent time in Denver. He had family in Denver and took his Wild West show all over, I mean, all over the world. Even though Denver and Colorado were the Wild West, were on the forefront of that, when he was touring through the 1880s, 1890s, his show still came to these Wild West towns that were, you know, only a few decades removed from the stories he was telling. At the end of his life, he he grew ill. He was up in Glenwood Springs and came down to Denver to live the rest of his days with his sister, who was living in Denver. Before he passed, he said that he wanted to be buried somewhere where he could look out over the plains that he loved. And Golden was the natural choice for that. 
So there were a few spots that were recommended, but ultimately they chose Lookout Mountain. They can look down over Golden, but all the way out over the plains, over Denver. And even on a clear day today from up there, you can look out and actually see the airport that they put halfway out to Kansas, but it's just barely visible on the horizon. So you can really see all of it up there. And that's where he's laid to rest. So, Well, that's a big claim to fame. So if you want to pay your homage to Buffalo Bill, go to Golden mm-hmm. and take a tour with, what's the name of your tour company again? I made it real easy for everybody to find, Golden History Tours. And we'll definitely link out to that in our episode notes. Wonderful. Yeah, I'd love to have people out. It's a lot of fun, like I said, to tell people about that history, to kind of bring them in and teach them about the town. You always feel like you own a little bit more of the town. It feels more personal once you do that. So it's great to have that reaction from people too. I love getting those responses and I get a lot of those that people really feel like they know the town so much better. They have a better respect for it now. And that's fun for me. So I I look forward to telling some more stories and walking people through town, bringing up that history that buried right in front of your face sometimes. And I'm not just saying this because I'm talking to you, but when I came to Colorado about eight years ago, I was looking for a place I wanted to live in Golden. Golden I love Golden, just where it's situated, the town itself, there's a lot going on there. What can I say about the Welcome to Golden, the arch there? Uh Uh-huh. That's very Wild West. Mm -hmm. I love that. We have that in our town, too. Golden is an amazing place, and I recommend if you come to Colorado or if you live in Colorado, definitely check Golden out and definitely check out Chris's tours. Do you do tours in the winter? I will run them year-round. Mm-hmm. We do. uh, The the walking tours can usually run most of the time. We don't get tremendous amounts of snow. I've done a few where there's been a little bit of snow on the ground, but I'll do the walking tours and the the pub crawl, the brewery tours as well during the winter. With those, as long as the streets and sidewalks are clear, we can go find a place to sit down and tell some stories. So are they regularly scheduled in the winter like they are in the summer? A little more sparse in the winter, but yep, we'll have the calendar open. And if you're listening to this and you want to come out, pull up the website goldenhistorytours.com it's got all the regular availability on there but you know depending on how busy we are and the number of tour guides that i have running because i do have one or two others that are getting up to speed we can do custom requests as well so if there's a date that you're looking for that you're going to be in town or if the morning doesn't work but the afternoon does absolutely use the form on there email me and we can do We'll try our best to find someone to come out if there's not something listed on the calendar for you. But we do custom tours as well. If you have a company outing, birthday party, for some reason, I've been getting a lot of bachelorette parties lately. Interesting. People looking for something a little different to do. We, we can have some fun okay. with those. The, uh, the pub crawl ones and the ghost tour ones are fun for that. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you want to share with my audience? I just think... Take a tour when you travel. And I know people are getting back out and traveling. We're a little bit on an edge right now as COVID's evolving. But if you're out there and you can find places that are doing tours, go take a tour with somebody. Tour guides love doing what they do. They're, they love telling stories and teaching people. And they'll give you all those secrets to really check out the town like a local instead of, you know, don't go to the Starbucks, go to this coffee shop. They'll, they'll treat you right over there. It's a much better cup of coffee. Tell them I sent you, they'll throw in a free scone. Who knows? But you wield all that power. <laughs> it's funny. We first moved into the town and Golden does have such a great community feel to it. 
I thought like it's just going to be fun to get to know people in this town. It would be great to walk into the brewery or the coffee shop and know the people that work there and greet them by name. So I thought that's what I'm going to do, just introduce myself when I go around to those places. The tour guide part helps now that I've started doing that. But I do have that kind of relationship now. And it's fun to be able to walk in there and just know who's working and say hi to people. And you really feel like a part of that community. And you- Oh, yeah, yeah. I did a tour last night. I did a ghost tour. There was a guy who was going to play music over at 511 Rose. And he came over with his guitar and started serenading my my. Group. Oh, how cool. Yes. I know. And I love that. I, I love, you know, just walking around town, waving. I feel like the governor. <laughs> you know, and I really enjoyed talking to you today, Chris. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. There you have it. Chris Albrecht in Golden, Colorado. To find out more about Chris and his tours, be sure to check out our episode notes. Thanks for joining us. Have a great week.